Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Heather Douglas, the author of Women, Intimate Partner Violence, and the Law. Her book is published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. Now, just to tell you a little bit about Heather Douglas, she's a professor of law at the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne and honorary professor at the School of Law at the University of Queensland. Now, she's worked in this area of law on the legal response to intimate partner violence for over 20 years. Heather Douglas, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Jane. It's great to have you. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Women, Intimate Partner Violence and the Law. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. It's been a a really long journey to this point for me. Uh, I started out as a criminal lawyer and when I was a criminal lawyer, I saw so much domestic violence and in that context. And and I often helped people to apply for protection orders and and to defend protection orders and uh, breaches of protection orders and so on. So I was very familiar with this area of law when working in that context And then I became an academic and I guess I gravitated towards what I knew, which was this kind of area of the law. And um, I started doing lots of work on protection orders early on and I interviewed people working in the field uh, supporting women getting protection orders. And I did some one-off interviews with women and their experience with the legal response to domestic violence. But it's really clear that the that women who are experiencing domestic violence have a really complex engagement with the law and are often engaged with lots of systems way beyond one. So I really wanted to try to get a picture of that experience and and how that worked women or didn't work for them and and, um, to try to really get a sense of what was operating well and what wasn't and and how we might move forward because law is such an important response uh, to domestic and family violence and, and getting it right although it's a constant battle, um, I think it's really important. And that really came through in the book that it really, it was so complex, all these different areas of law that women are actually navigating um, through like the court system. You know, I I think, you know, there's the criminal system, the family law system, and that's, it's different between state and federal jurisdiction. So yeah, it's very complex. And Um, it did come through that, you know, the different responses that the law has really impact on the responses of the women as well. Yeah. Well, I was actually really surprised about just how many kinds of different legal systems women were involved in, as you say, family law, which in Australia is a federal system, and criminal law, which is a state system, but also child protection, uh, civil protection orders, even going off to courts on other civil matters like defamation cases, small debt claims that were associated with their experience of violence. So just multiple different systems with different rules and definitions that they were needing to navigate. Quite extraordinary for some of them. It really is. It sounded um, for some of them in the book quite exhausting. I Mm. I just don't know how you get your head around it. Mm. Um, I want to turn now to some of the women in the book. So you open the book with a quote by one of the women who you interviewed. Now I just want to read that quickly. Um, Colleen in interview two said, that's what everyone thinks. She was so loved. But if they really stop to ask the question, how bad would the physical, mental and emotional abuse have to be before you were content to walk away from all that you owned, from your home, your possessions and all your money, facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt? How bad would it have to be if we just stare down three and a half years of legal proceedings, court dates, letters, police visits, difficulty in finding work, reconnecting with family and friends? How bad would it have to be? Nobody wants to ask that question. That's really what is behind every woman's flight. Now, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little about the women that you interviewed. Who were they and what were they fleeing? So the requirements for me starting out on this project um, 
were that women had to be over 18, they had to experience domestic and family violence in in the recent past, and they'd also had to engage in legal responses or, or legal systems in response to that domestic violence experience. So that was a kind of cohort I was aiming for, and I connected with domestic and family violence services to try to reach those those women because my main aim was to look at the kinds of legal system responses, given that I'm a law academic. And so for most of the women that I spoke to, they were either trying to leave domestic and family violence or trying to navigate living with it and using the law to support them in that context. So there was a range of women involved in the study and it was very much um, the range of women was related to the services that I worked with to, to recruit the women. So I worked, tried to work with a diversity of services, both services that supported women um, with their visa applications, so working with mostly migrant women, I worked with uh, Indigenous organisations and with more mainstream organisations supporting uh, women through family law context and protection order context. So there was a real diversity, but the common theme for all of them was that they'd experienced family violence and they'd engage with the legal system in response to that violence. So, it, you know, Colleen's experience was a very familiar one for, for lots of those women. And lots of those women in the study had tried to leave and come back because it was so complex, leaving all of that behind, all of that structure and um, that they had in that relationship and family relationships and so on, that they had to leave behind. And so often they were going back and forth, even throughout the period of the interviews. So they weren't all separated, although most of them were by the end. They saw themselves as separated. So it was a very diverse cohort of women that I spoke to. Now, I just want to pick up on that point. You mentioned that some women tried to leave and it was really complex and they often came back. And I think um, just to sort of dispel some of the biases and the myths that surround this sort of thing, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, this sort of narrative that surrounds all of this. People sort of think, well, why doesn't she just leave if it's violent or why does she keep going back? And this came through, I think, some of the um, sort of other actors in the book, you know, for sort of some of the police officers, for example, were like, well, you know, you shouldn't keep going back to him. I'm wondering if you can talk about this sort of narrative, perhaps dispel some myths and talk about how this relates to some of the women's stories in the book. Well, certainly um, I think there is an expectation from most service providers like child protection workers, police officers, even courts, court workers, many lawyers, that women should just leave this violence behind, get up and go, stop going back. Um, and it's just not so simple. Uh, for, for many women, actually leaving is going to be really dangerous and that's the first thing, that they know from experience that if they leave, uh, their partners will find them and they'll experience extremely severe abuse or people that they love will be um, placed in danger. So actually there's the physical violence of, of leaving and there's that risk that they face. Um, there's also all of the promises uh, that, are, that they face as well, promises to change. And many women have children with their abusive partner, so they are giving up a lot if they leave. They're giving up this sort of ideal notion of family and there's a real reluctance to do that. And so uh, there is that fear that um, leaving loses that concept of family. So I think that's important too. And they're facing often promises from their abusive partner that they will change, things will be better. So they're constantly leaving and returning because things don't turn out to be better, but there's promises made again and then they return. So they're trying to make this concept of family work. Um, they also, when they leave, often face real material issues you know they have difficulties finding proper housing they have difficulties finding enough money to feed the family and so on so it's not simply um, just about them it's about trying to make their family just able to eat and have a house to live in and so on so all of those things often they'll miss out at least for months for a period of months after leaving so there are those material changes they also often face real censure and I think that was part of Colleen's point they face real censure from their community, their friends, um, other people in their circles if they leave and, and sort of are seen as the destroyers of the family relationship or the family system. So there's a whole lot of different factors that are pushing at them from all directions uh, in terms of staying in the relationship. And the other point about law particularly is that when women law and 
Dobash and Dobash, who have researched uh, domestic and family violence for many years, have pointed this out, that many men just change the project when women leave. So instead of um, destroying them within the relationship, they destroy them externally outside of that relationship and they can use the legal system to try to do that. They, they change the project to uh, pursuing them through court processes, depleting their incomes and their finances and so on. So there's all sorts of reasons tied up together uh, that mean that women don't leave. And, you know, there were stories in the book that uh, really underlined the extraordinary danger that women faced if they left. And one of them that I always think about because uh, because it was such a serious um, end point, but uh, she had left many times. I called her Monica in the book and she'd left many, many times um, and come back. She had three kids with her partner, was searching for that family, you know, wanted to have the family together. And uh, he kept making promises of change and she did keep returning. But finally she did decide to leave and um, she got a protection order. And the during that day that she got the protection order, uh, the police were trying to serve the protection order, order on her ex-partner. And he was sending her many, many texts saying he still loved her, that they should still be together. And when she took these obsessive texts, there were, there were more than... 40 or 50 of them on a particular day, she took them to the police and they just said, but they're all messages of love. Uh, what's the worry here? And um, later that day, after he was finally served with the protection order application, he came and, and killed one of her close friends. So, you know, the, it, the dangers are very real and I think that many of the women's stories kind of uh, underline that factor as well. So it's not so simple on a practical level it's not so simple on a social level and it's not so simple on a safety level for women to just simply leave. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a really um, shocking story and I think many of the women's stories in the books were really profoundly moving. Um, just the sorts of things they endure is, you know, it's, it's hard to read even. Um, so I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about the methodology? Because you did conduct so many interviews and women did share, you know, some really intimate parts of their life with you. Can you talk about the methodology in this sense? Um, yeah, sure. So as I said before, I was trying to get an understanding of the complexity of the experience with law and I felt like I wanted to do that over time. So to really capture that, I wanted to talk to women over a period of time. So I, I was very influenced by reading a book by uh, Shad Maruna called Making Good and it was actually about uh, desistance from crime and it's about how people, um, once they were desisting from crime, were seeing themselves in a different way. So they were sort of reconstructing themselves and uh, Maruna had done multiple interviews with the people in, in his study and obviously what I was trying to do was quite different to that but I felt that you got a sense of, change over time by doing these multiple interviews so that's what I uh, I did in this particular study so what I wanted to do was interview women on around on three occasions if possible over a period of roughly three years and a lot of those limitations are to do with you know time and, and money and, and the and the restrictions of research projects generally but um, I ended up doing that and most of the women in the study were able to come back to me for, for the three interviews. So I think I lost uh, about 10 from the study who didn't want to continue to participate or who I was unable to recontact for the second or the third interview. So basically I interviewed uh, each of the women for about an hour, sometimes longer, on each occasion and the initial interviews were mostly made or undertaken at the services where women had um, been recruited. So I felt that was that was a safe place and I gave them alternatives as to going to the service or perhaps going to a coffee shop or a, or a library meeting room or other places, but tried to negotiate with them about the best place to, to speak. And then after that, second and third interviews, they did become a little bit more relaxed and we did get to know each other better. And um, so some of those interviews uh, shifted to cafes in their neighbourhood that they liked going to. Um, or one woman actually 
uh, was very familiar with the local courthouse and suggested we meet in the meeting room on a court on a day when the court's not very busy. So it was kind of interesting sometimes about places where women wanted to meet. But we met on three occasions over the three-year period and um, each interview was about an hour long. Sometimes women contacted me in between to just give me updates and, and follow up on things and um, I, I took those calls and had chats with women sometimes in between the interviews. Um, I was conscious that uh, also it's a reciprocal relationship so um, I did draw some lines. I didn't go to celebrations of parties or what I considered to be social events with the women although I was invited to some. Um, but I, I did uh, from time to time make referrals for women who would ring me to ask for advice. I would I would make sure I referred them to an appropriate place or set up a referral for them for legal advice or housing support or whatever it was they needed. So I was very conscious that this was a relationship that I had with these women over the period of the interviews. And, and for some of those uh, women, my relationship with them has continued. Now, I just want to step back for a moment. Um, you mentioned just before um, the scholars who talked about this sort of changing the project and how after the period of um, when, you know, the, the couple are together, when that ends and there's a separation, there's sort of uh, violence can be perpetrated through the court process. Um, in terms of this, in the book, just to sort of frame it, you identified different ways that women experience the law, which is described as uh, types of legal consciousness. I just want to talk a little bit about this just to sort of set it all up. So the first type is being um, before the law, by which the law operates and gains its impartiality by treating all those who come before it with indifference to their personalities or their past. The second type of legal consciousness is being within the law, where the law becomes an arena of strategy and tactics and actors are expected to act in their own self-interest to be resourceful and strategic to harness the law to their advantage. And then the final type of legal consciousness is being against the law, which you describe in the book as being where people exploit the interests of conventional social practices to forge moments of respite from the power of law. For example, foot dragging, omissions, ploys, small deceits, humour, and making scenes are typical forms of resistance for those up against the law. Now, can you talk just a little brief uh, about how the law operates in these ways, both from the perspective of the women who were the subject of your study and with regards to other relevant actors that the women come into contact with in the legal process? Yeah, sure. And I should point out that those particular forms of, of consciousness, I guess, are, are not ones I invented. They're from Eric and Sibley's classic book, The Commonplace of Law, which I found really helpful in thinking about the way uh both women and their abusive partners were, were coming at the law. And what I thought was interesting was that uh, both the women and their abusive partners occupied different sort of forms or had different forms of consciousness throughout the process of the interviews. It didn't stay the same. It changed over time. And it wasn't always clear to me why that happened, but certainly there were changes over time. So in terms of the idea of being before the law, um, I think uh, for some women... They described the relationship they had, for example, with magistrates as uh, in, in protection order hearings as magistrates being uh, neutral and fair, listening to both sides, making a fair decision. And I think that is a sense of being before the law and there's a formality of that and it is proper and appropriate and that's what some women were expecting of the law. And I think, I think that was... I feel from the people that I spoke to, relatively a rare experience for, for many of the women in the study. It did happen from time to time and I've documented a few moments of that. But for many women, it, it didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like they got a fair hearing, that there was a neutral position to begin with, um, that they were being confronted with by a police officer or a magistrate or a lawyer. They felt often that they weren't heard properly, that their experience wasn't honoured properly, that there wasn't... Um, a fair hearing given to them. Um, perhaps being within the law was uh, a more common experience and often I think that um, the legal systems abuses were often what women described in this context of strategizing law. And, you know, what was quite shocking for me was that some of the women talked about how their partners actually quit their jobs so they could concentrate on the legal system and their legal system approaches and, you know, preparing for different 
kinds of applications and and so on. So really, their abusive partners really strategizing the law uh, to use it to their advantage, whether it was to um, to suggest that the woman who had they had previously abused in their relationships was not a good mother and therefore should have less contact with the children of the relationship, uh, or whether they should report to police in a particular way and so forth. So there were real strategizing in relation to that. But the strategizing and the legal systems abuses weren't necessarily only used by the abusive perpetrators in the study. Some of the women also strategized law in this way. And I do remember one woman um, who I call Pari in the book, and she and her partner had a child together, and he was extremely violent towards her. She'd experienced strangulation. Um, he'd uh, frequently caused injury to her, and um, she had finally separated from him. And there was a family court uh, hearing going on around the contact with the child. And she determined that, um, well, she realised she did her own research, she was unrepresented, and she did some research. And she found that the Hague Convention didn't cover um, Australia and family court issues around uh, children in Australia. So it was possible for her to take her child back to her home country where there was no convention um, recognition and she could leave her child there with her family and go and visit her child there every summer so her child would be safe uh, from the abusive partner and she could still continue to see that child every, every, every summer. So she was strategizing too and working within the law. Um, and then I guess there was that, uh, you know, that last point um, that I talked about in terms of um, being against the law. And I think this was also something that, we saw from both sides of the story. So a lot of the time um, women talked about their partners simply just not turning up to hearings, not, not engaging with it, refusing to turn up, not abiding by the requirement that they turn up to a hearing. And what that would often lead to would be an adjournment rather than the woman winning the case. It would just be adjourned because he would be given the benefit of the doubt. Um, there were other issues around the family court and this was particularly difficult for women's um, financial closure in the relationship where just total refusals by partners to disclose income, for example. So definitely situations of being against the law in that context. But equally, there are also moments where women, uh, although there were contact orders where they were required to present their children for contact with their previous partner, they refused, so they breached the orders. And they did that for reasons that they could articulate as trying to maintain the safety of those children, but they were certainly working against the law. So there was all sorts of different ways these uh, approaches happened or these understandings of themselves in relation to law uh, were illustrated. Um, and I thought that was interesting to, to see this, this shift in movement amongst the people in the study. Yeah, it certainly was very interesting. Um... And then trying, like, understanding the different women's different experiences of the law and how the different actors um, in the different systems impact upon that. I want to turn now to the sort of main parts of the book. Um, you've touched on some of the physical violence that some of the women experienced, but I also want to talk about um, one of the key chapters and one of the key themes, I would say, in the book was about non-physical abuse and coercive control. So just to sort of give a bit of framing and a bit of background. Can you, what is coercive control and non-physical abuse? So in the book, I draw very much on Evan Stark's work around coercive control. And I think this is really an idea that um, it's, it's a pattern of behaviours that are aimed at controlling the person. So the abusive partner is engaging in various strategies and tactics in an effort to, to control in, in my study, the, the women who experienced domestic abuse. And I think what's um, uh, particular about coercive control is that it's very individualised so that uh, the abusive partner often changes the tactics over time and adjusts the tactics to fit in with the particular vulnerabilities of, of, their, uh, of the person they're trying to control. Uh, so certain techniques will work with one person or in one context that won't work in another context with that particular person who's being abused. 
So, uh, for example, um, particular threats will work for some women that wouldn't work with other women. Obviously, women who are on insecure visas uh, and where the perpetrator or the abusive partner is the sponsor of that visa, a threat about the visa and stopping the visa so that the woman would be deported would be a very useful controlling tactic in that context, whereas obviously that kind of threat's not going to work where a woman doesn't have a visa. Um, in other contexts where women have children, there may be threats made about uh, what the partner will do to the children uh, if she ever tries to leave, for example. So they're very targeted towards a particular context and uh, I think they're often the non-abusive factors within coercive control are often really powerful. So uh, emotional abuse, belittling, putting down, um, saying you're not good enough, you can't do this, you're incapable and so on are often tactics used and some of the women talked about these being used over a very long time and they start to believe the insults that are being flung at them on a regular basis. So they they make them vulnerable to further control and so on. Um, other things such as isolation, so that if the only person that's giving you feedback in your life really becomes your abuser, uh, that is that can be very a good way to control someone as well. So what was really typical amongst many of the women's experiences was that their partner isolated for isolated them from their friends, family, workplaces, and so on. And this was done in a range of ways. Uh, for example, one woman, Jane, talked about how every time she went out with a friend, her partner would just text her 10 or 20 times. And if she didn't respond to the text when she went home, he would be particularly abusive towards her and maybe violent towards her. It just became difficult to go out with friends and gradually she stopped doing it. Um, another woman would talk about how... Um, she uh, every time she went out with friends and family and her partner came with her, uh, he would be really rude to them and really difficult with them. And so she stopped going out on family events with him there and, um, you know, started to be isolated from her family. Also other times um, partners would make threats about uh, maybe su even suicide in some cases. If you do this, I'll kill myself, um, for example, or if you do this, I'll do that. And those kinds of threats could be quite uh, controlling as well. So gradually, often women found that they had less and less contact with family and friends. One woman described how he seemed to strategically pick off her friends one by one. And this was not an uncommon experience. So if, if all you're left with is your partner as your, as your main um, source of feedback on your life and what you're doing in your life, and that feedback is often negative, that is obviously really controlling as well and makes it more and more difficult to leave and live your own life. Evan Stark talks about um, freedom, essentially this form of coercive control leading to unfreedom. And I think that was very much the case or the way many women felt in the study as a result of many of these incidents of non-physical abuse. Other, other things women talked about were uh, the use of technology. So, for example, being tracked by GPS devices in their cars or um, at their workplaces or on the phone, their phone calls being recorded and so on. So they had this sense of uh, their partner's everywhereness, that their partner was always watching them, always able to see what they were doing. And sometimes it would take some time for them to realise that this recording was going on so that they just had this feeling that their partner was somehow kind of able to do all of this and they really had no idea how it was happen happening and it made them feel kind of crazy. So there are all sorts of ways that this non-physical abuse can be really important in entrapping women in these violent relationships and exacerbate uh, that experience of domestic and family violence, I think. Yeah, right, and that, that certainly comes through that, you know, um, this sort of entrapment, the reasons for it and the reasons... Um, that women are entrapped are really complex and it's not so straightforward. Um, I want to turn now to something you've touched on earlier already. Um, in the chapter on using law, you write that many of the ways that abusers use the legal process is to amplify women's enmeshment with both their abusive partner and the legal, legal system over time. So my question is, how do abusive passes, pass, sorry, partners use the legal system to continue to exert control over women? 
Yeah, so what what's interesting is that um, when people separate, uh, women often have, women who have experienced domestic violence often have a need of, of legal processes. They, they need the family court to help them uh, get some rules put around the contact with the children of the other party. They need the family court to help them get some access to the family finances, which they may not have access to, uh, so that they can kind of get appropriate housing and, and care for their children and so on. Um, and they might need a protection order so that they can have some safety. So they start to potentially engage with law. <clears throat> and in response to that, uh, often I saw that uh, their partners also engage with law but uh, did a bit extra. So, for example, where a woman applied for a protection order, their partner might apply for a cross-protection order. And that would extend the proceedings, potentially lead to a uh, hearing of, of two separate protection order hearings. And often, often the mostly the uh, male partner, the abusive partner in these cases, their protection order applications were thrown out. But nevertheless, the women had to go to court and had to defend these applications, had to prepare for them, had to engage in all that uh, time and material resources to actually respond to these spurious applications. And they were uh, constant for some women. So applications to change conditions on protection orders, change conditions in family law orders. As I said, applications for cross orders were sometimes used. Uh, sometimes um, he would, in criminal matters, for example, call the, his uh, victim as a, as a witness, even though she wasn't going to help his case, but that would get her to court. Uh, sometimes he would subpoena members of her family um, so there are all sorts of strategies that some abusive partners use to actually enmesh women in the court process. In spite of the fact that many of these applications would fail and were doomed to fail right from the start, they would nevertheless begin and they would run and women would have to engage with them. And most of us don't engage with the legal system very much. So it's it's stressful and um, it especially when you're engaging with a, a range of different systems and you're perhaps not well-resourced in terms of legal representation and so on. You have to spend a lot of time and money. There's, there's the kind of emotional energy in confronting your abusive partner when you're just getting closure through separation, you're heading back to court and having to confront them. So there's all sorts of ways that um, the law was used in this really negative way as effectively a part of the coercive controlling behaviour. The whole process does sound immensely stressful, um, especially when it's, you know, drawn out um, and women are telling their stories repeatedly. It's, it sounds really, really challenging, the court process. Mm. I wonder if you can tell me in this context, were there different experiences for either culturally and linguistically diverse women, or sorry, from diverse backgrounds, or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women? How did they use the law experience the legal process? Well, I mean, if we think about um, the domestic and family violence as coercive control and preying on the vulnerabilities of, of women in their particular context, it's, it's not surprising that the legal systems are used differently as well, potentially. Um, and obviously, uh, women with insecure visas, the whole migration system was a place of contest for many of those women. So a number of the women who I interviewed uh, had come to Australia um, on spousal visas so that the sponsor of their visa was their abusive partner. And, of course, they weren't aware that their partner was abusive at the outset. It became clear uh, when they moved to Australia and, and started having a relationship that that was the case. And um, there is a way to um, get a permanent residency without spending two years with your abuser by going through an exception process in the migration legislation in Australia where you can show domestic and family violence. And that often became a site of contest as well, that women were trying to demonstrate domestic and family violence at the same time as uh, her partner might be trying to demonstrate that she she's lying. So there were issues around that system and that process. And, of course, the use of use of visa threat was was not uncommon in the context of those spousal visa cases. So, for example, partners using the visa to say, unless you clean my house, have sex with me, do whatever, um, 
you know, I'll send you back to your home country, I'll deport you, I'll stop supporting your visa. And the other point about domestic violence in that context too is that a lot of the women didn't have access to financial resources beyond the support of their partner. So that really opens the door for financial abuse in that context as well, which is not uncommon. So some of the migrant women were talking about how they didn't even have access to the kitchen or to food. So clearly those play out in slightly different ways. Um, for Indigenous women, I think the the strongest um, point, I suppose, that differentiated them in, in my study was the role of the Child Protection Service, and that really stood out for me in that context and uh, how they were engaged differently with the Child Protection Service. The Child Protection Service uh, seemed to be more punitive towards them, and that was the sense that, that women had of that that service. So there were slightly different things going on. Aboriginal women really, in my study at least, didn't engage with the family court at all. Um, that was most the engagement of Indigenous women was through child protection services, protection orders, criminal justice field, but not family law. Whereas um, women from more mainstream communities, if I can call them that, uh, were much more likely to engage with the family law system. So there were differences in terms of the systems engaged with, but these are generalisations because there were exceptions across the study as well. This is probably a good time to talk then about um, how women interacted uh, with the Child Protective Services. Um, and this was quite a significant experience for many women in this study. Can you talk about how the law regarding Child Protective Services operates in Australia to compel state intervention in situations where children are exposed to inter intimate partner violence? So the, the recognition of domestic and family violence in the child protection context has been thought to be really important that um, children, even if they're not directly hit by a violent partner, being around domestic and family violence is, is traumatic for children. So the child protection legislation recognises that and that can be a reason for child protection services to, to intervene, to say, well, this is an unsafe environment, we need to take the kids out of this environment and either and, and place them in a safe environment. And that might be with family members or it might be um, in state care systems. So certainly that is the recognition in Australia. And um, often what happens in certain contexts where there are children involved and there's a police call out, police will sometimes call child protection services to, to come with them to, to the site to, to make an assessment as well in terms of whether the kids are safe. So that certainly was something that happened from time to time uh, in the interviews. And I think uh, that was particularly the case um, for the Aboriginal women. And certainly that was their fear. And, and one of the problems with that is that um, if women fear child protection engagement in the context of domestic and family violence, they may be less you know, willing to call the police when they're feeling unsafe. So these systems you know, uh, operating have real influences on each other and that can be really problematic as well. And certainly that was the case for, for some of the women in the study. One woman that stands out for me and whose story is um, described in the book is, is Cassie, who was an Indigenous woman and her partner was also an Aboriginal man and they had several children together and uh, there was violence in the home and, and Cassie was in an effort to try to make sure that the children were not in the room when violence happened. Um, but nevertheless, she was very clear that they, they were uh, in a violent relationship. She described their relationship as full of fighting. Um, but child protection did in, intervene in their family and uh, Cassie describes the moment of intervention where um, the child protection services kind of swoop on the family in the evening around dinner time when they're all sitting around having dinner at the table and um, they, her partner is literally chained to the fence while they remove the children from the house to the distress of Cassie and her partner. Um, and then her partner is arrested on, on various other criminal offences and then the rest of her story really is about Cassie trying to figure out how to get her children back. And um, so her partner is in custody and her children have been placed with various family members 
and um, she's trying to figure out what the rules are for getting her children back into her care. And she really doesn't feel like she ever gets any kind of sense as to exactly what she's got to do to, to get the children back into her care. But one thing does seem clear is that she's got to absolutely relinquish her relationship with the children's father. And, you know, this is, this is an incredibly uh, a terrible thing for Cassie because, as she points out, and they're both Aboriginal people, she points out that her partner has had people let him down throughout his life at every point. And really what the child protection services are doing is asking her to let him down again. And there's no support given to Cassie to get her relationship back on track. It's all about getting them separated. And she really feels, you know, quite devastated by this whole response. And it's, it's an incredibly sad story, I think. But, but, you know, there are others. There are others in the story. Um, there was a, a, another woman in the story who talked about how her partner actually used the child protection system against her. Uh, there was quite a lot of um, conflict between her and her ex-partner. She had a family law order where she had um, the children living with her with some contact to the father, and uh, she felt that every time the children went on contact visits, they would come back quite abusive to her, sort of worded up by her partner about the kinds of jibes they should give her and the kinds of abusive comments they should make. And... um, one day when the children came back, and by now the children are sort of 16, 14 and 8 years old, I think, or around those ages, um, and the 16-year-old comes back and um, says after a contact visit uh, some, some comments about uh, how her parenting is, is terrible and a range of other things and says he's going to contact his father and wants to go home. And she grabs the phone and then he grabs the phone back and calls the police and the police arrive with child protection services. And this leads to a whole range of um, systems coming in on each other, child protection systems, police, criminal justice systems. Um, she gets, Sarah gets charged with assault um, and child, children get removed. The family law order gets put on hold. And all of this becomes uh, an issue that has to be resolved over the next sort of six months. And... Um, eventually the child protection decision is found to be the complaint is unsubstantiated, there has been no child abuse, the assault is withdrawn, there was no assault, and the family law um, hearing the family law arrangements go back on track as usual. But by this time the children have been living away from their mother, the older children, and are quite aligned towards the father, and she really struggles to have any relationship with them. So there's incredible sadness in the way some of these things play out and they're really systems that have have failed for many of the women in the study, I think. Yeah, that certainly comes through in the book. This sort of um, you wrote about how the injuries don't just come from partners but also the bureaucracies and institutions which can disrespect and further exacerbate women's marginalisation um, this really was a theme that came through and this sort of over, overwhelming sort of sadness and, um, and women even being blamed for their um, being in these situations and for the violence perpetrated against them. Yeah, look, I think, I think there is that pressure and I think that pressure still continues with the child protection system that it's mothers that need to keep their children safe um, rather than the focus being on how to get fathers to stop being violent it's how do mothers what mothers have to do to keep their children safe and it really uh, doesn't see all of the incredible work that women do do to try to keep their children safe it it sort of ignores a lot of the work they do and I think that's an incredible frustration that the the spotlight is shone on their behaviors rather than the behaviors which are wrong which are being perpetrated by their partners I think that is a frustration Mm, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so I guess this would be a good time to talk about policing with regards to intimate partner violence. Can you talk a bit about some of the women's experiences in their contact with the police um, and how the police responded to situations? Yeah, sure. Um, look, I think uh, police don't recognise coercive control. I think they don't know it when they see it and um 
So women, for example, might get a protection order and uh, the protection order might be breached, for example. So say you have a protection order with no contact conditions. And the example I gave Monica before of uh, protestations of love made in obsessive text messages over the course of, of a day, that really is um, domestic violence. That really is an effort at coercive control. And I don't think police uh, are good at picking up on these uh, non-physical forms of violence, these, these, these aspects of coercive control. And I think that was something that came out in a lot of the interviews. Um, there's also the, the problem of often when police are called to a domestic violence call-out, women are often very distressed, uh, crying. Um, maybe they're angry too. Maybe they're yelling. Maybe they're frustrated. Um, they can often have this kind of uh, set of emotions that seem uh, really crazy, as women described it, crazy or irrational. Whereas often when police come to the uh, scene, men, have, men are not feeling like that. They're feeling cool, calm and collected, appearing rational and able to give a rational narrative of events that puts them in a good light. So police are confronted by these two people, one who seems crazy and irrational, frustrated, distressed, etc., and one who seems really rational, and uh, they're often seduced by that rational narrative. And so they miss the domestic violence and uh, maybe they don't respond how they need to respond. And that's certainly what a lot of women talked about. The other thing too is that um, women will report things and come across distressed and irrational. And so their description of events will be discounted in favour of a rational description of events because of the way that it's presented. One example I'm thinking of is uh, one of the women in the study who talked about how her uh, partner was physically violent to her, hit her in the face, and she actually had a handprint on her face. And uh, she told the police that he'd come round and hit her, and she showed them the, her facial injury, which they took photographs of. And um, the police, though, went to see him, and he explained how she'd been hitting herself. And then the woman in the study had to go through this long discussion with the police to say, well, the angle of the hand on my face would be really difficult to get it into that angle. Just to, to, to explain why it wouldn't be her that's hitting her face to give her these injuries. So I think that was kind of one of those examples where this rational response seduces police into kind of taking one sign over the other. And I kind of described that in the book as kind of aligning um, with these perpetrators who have this incredibly rational persona in these contexts. And I think that creates real difficulties um, for women to, to get their stories listened to and responded to appropriately in some cases. Hmm. And then sort of the next stage of the process moving from the police intervention or interaction was the court process and then women dealing with lawyers. Can you talk sort of about the different access that women had to lawyers and how having a lawyer changed their experience of the law and the legal process? Yeah, so women had incredibly diverse access to lawyers. So um, some of them had access to, to legal aid, so state-funded legal aid services and a lawyer through, through that service. Some had access to uh, community uh, law services, so basically... Um, non-government organisations but not private lawyers, so uh, community justice services, and some had private lawyers. And um, usually this changed over time, and that was one of the surprises I think as well, that women mostly don't just start off with one, one form of legal representation and continue that through all of the systems they're engaged with. Usually it's really piecemeal and, and changeable, and that was certainly the experience for I think most of the women in the study. Um, so... Many women would get access, for example, to uh, support for a protection order, but then in the family courts they'd, be, uh, they'd have to use private uh, lawyers because maybe there would be a bit of family property uh, to be divided and so the view would be that ultimately the settlement would pay for the lawyers. So there was real diversity in that and sometimes women couldn't get lawyers to assist them at all, so uh, they were unrepresented. 
And depending on where the women were at in their lives and their backgrounds and, and their own kind of materials and skills had real, really diverse um, uh, outcomes for women. Uh, you know, I, I remember going to court with one of the women in the study called Lale and uh, she had a uh, child with her abuser and they'd separated and there were arrangements for the child to be only seen at a contact centre, a, a privately paid contact centre by the abuser. And uh, for a few months, Lale had been able to draw on the services um, of a support agency and get taxis to the contact centre, which was something like an hour from her house. But obviously that wasn't sustainable. Her ex-partner had access to a car, uh, had an income, and so um, she was trying to change the contact centre to something closer to where she could catch public transport and her ex-partner was resisting this. And I remember going to court with Lale um, because she had no one to support her and she, she, uh, she'd printed, she'd given me, the service had sent me an email with all of her documents with her consent and I'd printed them out and put them in a folder and had them all neatly arranged and I sat in the in a seat in the court and she meanwhile was there representing herself with a she didn't speak English as a first language her English wasn't very good she had a plastic bag full of documents didn't really understand any of the processes and was up against a legally represented uh, person on the other side Um, and the, the judge was asking for documents and she would fish through this plastic bag trying to find the right one she couldn't actually even really read the documents I was able to hand them from to her from my file, but if I hadn't been there and normally I wouldn't be there, I, I really worry about what would have happened in that context. Um, I don't actually know what happened at the end of that, but certainly in that case the, the judge seemed to understand the story and um, was, uh, was uh, we were waiting judgment on, on the case. But it really underlines the incredible disadvantage for some of the women who don't have a lawyer. But for other women who didn't have a lawyer, sometimes they found that, that it was an advantage. And I, and I wouldn't want to overstate this because um, some of the women who didn't have a lawyer were very articulate and had tertiary education and so on and, and really were able to, to read and what write with very high proficiency and so uh, could make arguments in court and, and I guess relate to, to the process uh, in some ways better than other women And sometimes they had success. Um, but overall, the, the story of legal representation was that it was unreliable, piecemeal, um, and it was unpredictable about how that would work out. So if you were unrepresented, uh, you were relying on a magistrate or a judge being sensitive to that and, and helping you through the process, which, which wasn't always the case uh, as well. The other, one of the common things was that women would have access to what is described in the literature as unbundled services. So they would, for example, draft uh, a statement for a particular case and then they would give it to a lawyer to actually redraft into sort of legal language for them. And, uh, you know, that, that's helpful on one level, but the problem is that that lawyer has no sense of the overall trajectory of the case And so um, really it's very difficult for that lawyer to, to give any advice on, on, on a single document. So they're really at a disadvantage with those unbundled services, I think. And that sort of comes back to the point you made earlier about um, the idea of like legal consciousness and this idea of being equal before the law by which the law operates and it assumes sort of the equal resources of parties coming before it. Um, and so it did seem that this wasn't always the case in the women's experiences of the law. And so you, it's understandable that they had, you know, this sort of, they were within the law um, and having to sort of navigate in that sense. Turning next to the issue of judges in the situation, uh, in context of protection orders and the family law system, um, I just want to read briefly, you wrote that when judges fail to understand the dynamics of IPV or intimate partner violence and coercive control, when they do not prepare for hearings or maintain control of the court, and when they commit to facilitating the abuser's ongoing relationship with his children, regardless of the level of abuse, there's a risk that the safety of the woman and children is sacrificed 
These failures also open up the opportunities for perpetrators to use the legal system to continue the abuse, allowing legal processes to be a vehicle for further traumatization. Can you talk um, from you know your research how sensitive about how sensitive judges were to the dynamics of interpersonal um, violence and yeah and the women's experiences of going to the court in relation to judging and judges? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that in in all situations it's this is variety. So there were variable legal responses through lawyers, child protection workers, police. It, it wasn't all absolutely bad, but it was incredibly inconsistent. And that was the same story, I think, with with judges. And I think at the core of a lot of this is not understanding things like uh, coercive control not understanding the extraordinary difficulties associated with separation. So I think those those two kind of core ideas are, are really central to, to getting better responses to domestic and family violence. And, and certainly uh, I think that was the case, that uh, there was real inconsistency amongst judges. And I think there are, there are really practical reasons for why this happens. And I think some of them are pr- problems with resourcing and some of them are problems with the way uh, judges uh, understand and think about things. Um, And I think that's sort of a training question. So there are different things that are at play here. Um, Certainly uh, one of the problems in the family court system and one of the problems in the protection order system is their civil systems. So they operate around the expectation of consent orders and settlement. And that is reasonable because um, our resources in the system really would be very stretched if everything went to a full hearing. But nevertheless, consent orders in a context where there's serious abuse of power on one side, especially where uh, the, the woman who's experienced violence is not represented, really makes consent orders extremely problematic. And yet these are often effectively rubber-stamped by judges and magistrates in this context. So I think that's a, we really need to take care here about consent orders. Um, I think also there's a consistency problem. Um, we have better consistency in the family courts in Australia because there's likely to be one judge allocated to the case. But in the protection order system, in the criminal law system, there's likely to be many different magistrates and judges involved along the way. And that means that um, it's easier to uh, present different stories and um, change the narrative on a regular basis and, and confuse things. So that can be used as a strategy to, to get a different result or to, de- to delay a result if, if that works for, for example, in my study, for abusive partners who, are, who I think are misusing the law. So I think that inconsistency of magistrates involved in these processes can create problems. Um, also, I think also the uh, failure to prepare is understandable because if we're expecting settlement and consent orders, you're not going to prepare for a hearing every time. Um, but the failure to prepare means that women, especially women who are unrepresented, are having to tell their story over and over and over again to different magistrates and different judges. And that is obviously a re-traumatizing for, re-traumatizing for them and really problematic, I think. So having some level of preparation, I think, would be ideal and it's not always there. Um, I could go on. Delay is another problem. I think delay is another tactic used uh, in many of these cases and I think delay just extends the potential for family violence and delay is connected to this inconsistency problem and uh, the problem of lack of preparation. So I think that's sort of an interrelated issue here. So there's many, I think, problems that we could deal with better in that context. Mm. It um, it seems like these are complex issues but does it does come across that there is significant need for reform in this area. Um, and so then you wrote a chapter on the process of conditionality and separation, and one of the common threads running through many of the stories of the women was that of the role of the legal system and how that, how that can discourage or support women in their separation from their abusive partners, um, and also in relation to how they're stigmatised for their decisions to stay or return. So I'm wondering if you can talk about maybe what tools are available to women to protect themselves and their children in the sort of uh, conditions of separation and especially in the context of the legal system. 
Um, well, you know, the family court doesn't actually require uh, that people be living in a different house. They do. The family court, though, does require one year of separation um, in order to make orders around children. So that that puts pressure to kind of have some form of separation there and some expectation around separation and the clarity of separation, which isn't always a clear moment for women, I think. Um, when did they exactly separate? That's often problematic for them to, to identify because usually the separation has been really more of a journey or a process rather than an instant in time. So I think to put a number on it is, is, is misleading in some ways for, for the understanding of what separation looks like. Um, similarly, with protection orders, it's possible to get a protection order in a context where uh, the parties are still at least living together uh, they don't have to state that they're separated in order to get a protection order. But I think the underlying expectation of both of these systems is that people are not living together and that they are separated. And as we talked about earlier, that, that is a very complex thing to separate and um, not going to be uh, a one-off instance. It's going to be a journey towards separation and it might be difficult to see when that moment of absolute separation happens, if ever, in these relationships. So I think this focus on separation does end up being um, problematic in this system and we shouldn't really be asking that question of, you know, when did you separate it, are you separated, but always focusing on this question of are you safe, what do you need to be safe. And so now we've talked so much about, um, we've yeah, we talked about so many different things today. I'm just wondering, just to bring it all together, all of your findings in relation to, for example, police, um, protection orders, family courts, judging, um, responses of lawyers. Do you have any recommendations that you think would improve the experience of the legal system for women who've experienced um, intimate partner violence? Well, I certainly think that uh, legal systems should be joined up. I think having these state federal systems as we do in Australia is, is problematic. I think we need the same definitions across our systems, so the same de definition of domestic and family violence so that we know that we're all talking about the same thing. We don't have the same definitions at the moment. Um, I think we need, and once we have the same definitions and joined up systems, I think our training and education for people who work in these processes can be more synchronised and, and that would be of a benefit. There would be a more consistent experience across different systems for everybody and that everybody would be knowing uh, better what to, to look for in these particular systems. So I think that's important. Um, that, that consistency is key, I think. I think there should be uh, better access for, for uh, legal aid in these contexts and, and I think that there's, there's not enough and I think uh, women really would benefit from having greater access to, to legal support in these contexts. And I also think that um, some of the issues around just simply turning up to court being a stress both because women have to confront their abuser, but also because of all the practical challenge that, challenges that you face by having to physically go to a courtroom, getting childcare, getting parking, paying, paying to get there and so on, taking time off work, etc. If you could go online, um, that might make a difference. And I know that um, we've had through COVID here in Australia and in many other countries, lots of experiments with going online with courts. And and I just wonder whether we might learn something from that experience because if we take um, the person, the people, the humans out of the courtroom and um, not allow that confrontation, that actually may reduce the number of spurious applications that are made by abusers, which are ultimately just made to, to get that woman into the courtroom so that he can um, try to exercise control over in that context. So I think experimenting more with online processes to make them less strenuous would potentially be really helpful for women in these um, contexts as well. And I think that's a really interesting point. I guess one, we could say, positive thing that has come out of COVID is we might see different ways of doing things. Um, and so when there is so much need for reform, we can see that actually the adjustments that would be required to really change the system might actually be a lot more minor than we sort of would anticipate otherwise. Possibly. Now, yeah, possibly. <laughs> um, now, just before we go, um, Heather, I'm wondering if you can just um, tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. 
Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. So I'm really interested in um, the full circle of this. So I started off as a criminal lawyer and I'm, I'm really interested in criminalisation in this context. So we've got sort of Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, um, and I'm wondering where criminal law fits and where criminalisation fits in domestic violence context. Um, and that's what I'm working on at the moment. So uh, I'm working on a big project on uh, using strangulation. We've, we've just introduced uh, non-fatal strangulation offences throughout Australia for the context of domestic and family violence. And I'm looking uh, with a colleague of mine, Robin Fitzgerald, at at that offence and, and how that works in this context and what are the unintended consequences of using the criminal law as a response to domestic violence and how it works and how it doesn't. That's where I'm going at the moment. That sounds very interesting and also very meaningful um, and important work, just just as this um, book was. Um, now, just to sum it all up, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Professor Heather Douglas about her latest book, Women, Intimate Partner Violence and the Law. It was published by Oxford University Press at the start of 2021. You've been listening to the New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Heather, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Jane.